Have you always dreamed of creating your own beauty products or building your own beauty brand? Welcome to Beauty Business School, the podcast devoted to empowering beauty entrepreneurs. I'm your host, Doreen Block. Join me as we talk with industry insiders, beauty founders, and more to provide you with knowledge and resources for launching your own beauty brand. Enjoy the episode. Hi, Neil. I'm so thrilled that you could join me today. We have Neil Sunny, the author of Startup Goldmine. Welcome. Yeah, good to be on. I'm, uh, it was great to reconnect with you, number one, and then uh, just really excited to be on, on your show. Yes, absolutely. So you have an incredible range of career experience. We met when you were at Essay Lauder Companies. So you've worked for both startups and large companies. Tell us in your own words about your background. So I'll try to give the uh, the, the Cliff Notes version, <laughs> but um, I yeah. <laughs> so I uh, going going I guess from uh, start to to the present day. Um, so I actually my educational background is as a chemical and biomedical engineer, uh, which I that's what I studied in college. Uh, but while I was in school, um, I had the insane idea that I could also maybe do a startup at the same time. Um, so that's when I when I started my first company, which was. Um, actually a marketplace, uh, which you'll see as a theme that, that pops up um, throughout my career, but it was a marketplace that connects um, high school students, college students, and then college recruiters, um, with the idea of being college students uh, speaking in their own words about the schools that they, that they go to, and then um, connecting directly with uh, the high school students that colleges were looking to recruit. Um, so of course, you know, Amazing. that, yeah, so that experience obviously taught me, uh, you obviously know all about this given you're being a founder yourself. But uh, when you start a company, you obviously know nothing. Um, and you learn a lot along the way about, about yes. a lot of different things. Uh, so that was a really good introduction to uh, all sorts of things like business, um, the internet. You know, obviously I use the internet, but using it to build a company is a different, a whole different animal. Um, marketing, uh, things I never, you know, never studied in school, obviously. Um, so from from that company, which you know we ended up actually turning that company into more of a nonprofit. Um, it was probably a better nonprofit idea than a business idea um, at the end of the day. And we ended up joining the uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation uh, because they had, they had some very similar goals uh, as we did. So um, yeah, that kind of came to a conclusion right around the time that I graduated. But I from there I joined um, a company called MomTrusted.com. Uh, where I led growth, which was, you know, all sorts of marketing, sales. Um, that was a real, I would call that like my real apprenticeship um, mm. in a lot of the concepts that I even talk about in the book. Uh, just given the fact that Mom Trusted, um, you know, has, it still exists, uh, has an audience of over 2 million parents. And uh, there's a lot of companies that want to reach those those parents because, you know, there's Definitely. companies like Procter & Gamble. Yeah, uh, Johnson Johnson, Kimberly Clark. So lots of different companies they really want moms in particular, which Mom Trusted has. Uh, I'd say the vast majority of those two million parents are are moms. So um, that was a fascinating experience, just to learn about uh, you know marketing on a much larger scale and then sales on a much larger scale. Um, and this is something I, I definitely talk about in the book. But uh, you know, I definitely didn't know how to sell going into that experience. And luckily, the founder that I worked for, um, he he was and is a master salesperson. So I, I learned a ton about that. Um, and actually, Mom Trusted still around, it's a profitable company, um, and the founders kind of still run it, and they, they it's a very uh, nice um, 
income generating business for them. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, so I still own, you know, some equity in the company and, and I ended up actually working for uh, one of the founders again <laughs> later on, which is, brings me to uh, my Estee Lauder experience. So, oh, okay. um, yeah, so, so one of the founders of Mom Trusted ended up actually running and he still runs it, uh, innovation at Estee Lauder. Um, so as wow. part of that, one of his, one of his pillars was uh, that Estee Lauder could do a better job of working with smaller companies, especially startups. Um, and so as part of that, he was looking for somebody to come in and, and kind of build and then run that part of the organization. And so, um, you know, he and I talked about it and, and I'd never worked for a big company at that time, but he knew that I really uh, understand and really enjoy the startup side of things. And so um, mm-hmm. I ended up joining ELC uh, and I ended up staying for almost three years, uh, which is way mm-hmm. longer than I expected <laughs> that I would stay there. Um, but I basically built from nothing from this didn't really exist before I got there, but um, he and I, I guess, together built the external innovation uh, function for, for the company, which That's basically incredible. was, yeah, and I think this is where you and I first interacted, but it was figuring yeah. out how, so Estee Lauder, um, and I, I'm, I expect we'll return to Estee Lauder during this, uh, the rest of this interview, but um, mm-hmm. Estee Lauder is a very large company in the sense that they have, at least when I was there, there were 40, I think a little more than 40 brands uh, under the Estee Lauder umbrella. Uh, and all those brands have different audiences and different products and different goals. So the brands range from obviously the Estee Lauder brand, but they also own Clinique and Mac and Smashbox and, and the Tom Ford cosmetics brands and La Mer, uh, you know, and, and uh, Darfin. And I mean, there's so many brands that are under mm-hmm. there. Um, and under more their to come, I'm sure, too, as they continue oh, yeah. to acquire and grow their portfolio. Absolutely. Yeah. So there's so many, there's so many brands in the portfolio. And so, you know, for me in, in the Estee Lauder role that I had, they were, the brands were basically my customers um, and that they were who I had to make happy. So that's how I actually thought about it is I would go and uh, I, I would be talking to the product development heads, let's say of the, these different brands and they have things they're struggling with or, or features that they would like to put into their product um, that w- for one reason or another, Estee Lauder could not develop internally. Um, and so my job would then be, okay, let's go find somebody who can, whether it's a startup university, you know, it could be anyone, even just a, even like a, somebody in their garage, right? It, it doesn't matter, really mm-hmm. matter. Um, but somebody outside of the company who might be able to help solve, uh, a, either a technology problem or a marketing problem or, or something of that nature. Um, mm-hmm. so that was a, that was a fascinating role because obviously given the fact that Estee Lauder is in 40 plus brands that all have different technology needs and marketing needs. Um, I got to see a lot of different things and meet a lot of different cool companies. Um, so yeah, that's, I think the Cliff Notes version that's of the background. Amazing. Yeah. And then, so since then, um, just this part, I'll keep brief, but uh, I started another company. Um, this one's called Unlimited Brewing. And basically we're a marketplace uh, that allows anybody to go create their own craft beer, whether it's for um, a party event, uh, or even to sell. So you can create your own brand um, and we can help you get distribution in, in stores or even sell online. Um, and we do that via a network of uh, breweries who have spare brewing capacity. So that way, uh, you know, if you ever wanted to go create oh, a beer cool. brand, I don't know if you yeah. do, uh, but if you ever wanted to, uh, you don't have to go build your own brewery and, you know, raise a million dollars to fund it and, um, you know, spend all this time getting licenses. 
uh, we basically take care of all the annoying backend stuff for you. Um, you can design the label, you can design the recipe, um, you can do the marketing, but we'll help you do all the production side things. And, um, and then you don't have to worry about, you know, label registrations with the federal government or all, all the annoying little things that mm -hmm. you have to do in beer uh, that, you know, are kind of unique to being a highly regulated industry. But um, yeah, that's what I'm doing these days. And then I also wrote uh, a book, which you mentioned earlier, um, called The Startup Goldmine, which is basically for helping founders um, better interact with large companies, whether they're trying to sell to them, partner with them, or ultimately get acquired by them. Amazing. And we are going to get more into the book as well. We're going to talk more about innovation. And by the way, beer and beauty, not so far apart. There's actually a brand that I've been hearing about lately that's called Brew, spelled, spelled B-R-O-O. -O. You've got to look this up. It's all about using the benefits of barley, uh, whether it's the B vitamins, the proteins to make shinier hair. So there's oh, that's really cool. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. I think I saw, I think I saw um, a hair brand doing something in the, along those lines too. I want to say, I don't, I don't, I don't want to say the wrong brand, but I, I'm pretty sure I saw a hair brand was doing something yeah. in the beer space as well. So there's definitely overlap. Oh yeah. So it's incredible to hear about your background. And um, I wanted to ask, why did you decide to write the book? Um, you obviously have so much experience, but what do you think it is that entrepreneurs really need to know or what drove you to, uh, you know, pen the text? Yeah, so uh, that's, a, that's a great question because it's a lot of work. <laughs> um, but I can I, imagine. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, it, it ends up taking a lot longer than, uh, than maybe at least I initially expected. Mm -hmm. um, but it, so for me, the biggest thing was uh, when I first started um, my, my first company, I found a lot of good resources for many of the things that I didn't know. I mean, there's great internet marketing resources, there's great marketing resources in general. Um, even sales, uh, there's some really good things you can find. Um, obviously, programming, you can find some cool things. Uh, but what I didn't find, and I think you know, what I really set out to go create, um, was a resource that basically could help you if you had never worked inside of a large company, really help you understand kind of what's happening on the other side. Um, and for me, you know, when I joined ELC, that was my first and, you know, I guess besides some other consulting work that I've done in, in, since then, um, one of my only experiences inside of a large company. And before that, there were plenty of things that mystified me of uh, kind of my interactions with mm. these large companies. And afterwards, mm -hmm. they made a lot more sense. Um, and I think that's, I mean, one of the things a founder would get out of reading the book is that many of the, the things that might frustrate you um, or be just you know, downright bizarre when you're interacting with a large company are actually logical when you view them from the large company's perspective or the LEC employee's perspective, who the employee you're interacting with on the inside. Um, you know, I just say, I, I don't want to take up a ton of your time with examples, but I'll give a, a couple. Um, <laughs> Please. It's so helpful. As you know, as you know, there's a lot in the book, right? So there um, is. There is. Yeah. So I guess one of the, uh, one of the, the biggest examples for one of the biggest things to me that I, I realized um, in my very quickly when I was working with ELC um, is that when you're on the startup side and you're interacting with a large company, and, it, and this does not matter what industry you're in, uh, just for the startup, the interaction with the large company basically can make or break your company. So if you're, you know, if you're in the beauty space, right, and you can do a deal with 
uh, a sizable deal with Estee Lauder or L'Oreal, okay, that's you're you're in very good shape um, because now you have a great name on your client list, and you know it's pretty easy to then convince other people because hey, Estee Lauder trusts you. Um, if you're in the beer industry, you're doing a beer with uh, a deal with Anheuser Busch, okay, you're in very good shape, you know, because Anheuser Busch trusts you. So for the startup, that deal is kind of uh, it's going to take up a big percentage of your mind share. You're going to be spending a lot of time thinking about it. If you're on the large company side, you might be looking at 200 of those types of deals. And wow. you know, I won't lie to you, like we at, we basically we were tracking the different deals we were working on, and there were usually some in that pipeline somewhere between 100 to 250 um, at any given time. And so, not saying that all Amazing. of those are active, right? Or like all of those yeah. are requiring active work on an everyday basis. Absolutely not. Um, but there's a lot of people competing for that attention, and it might not be that there's anything wrong with what you pitched them or, you know, you, that you didn't intrigue them. Um, but what might be happening is just that there's another deal they have to prioritize or there's something else they have to go work on. It's not that they're ignoring you or not responding immediately to your email because they want to be, uh, or because they're being rude. It's more because they, there might just be a lot of things. Uh, there might be a lot of deals on their plate and, you know, yours might not be the utmost top priority for them at that moment. Um, that was really hard, believe it or not, and maybe that's a naive thing on my side, that was mind-boggling to me when I was on the startup side only. Uh, if somebody mm -hmm. didn't respond to my email, you know, within 72 hours, I'd be like, oh man, they must not, they must not have liked my pitch, they might have, I'm probably out, and then, you know, I'd get a response the next week, and I'd be like, wait a minute, maybe they do want, maybe they are interested, maybe <laughs> up and down. The roller coaster of emotions. Exactly. It would be such a roller coaster. Um, but now, you know, having been on the inside, you kind of a lot more patient uh, afterwards because, mm -hmm. you know, you just realize it's not, you know, for you or for me, Numbers. it might be a big deal I'm going to do this year. But for them, yeah, it might just be one of many. Um, and wow. that's fine. And so is there a need for founders, let's say, in that situation to be more pushy or is it just, you know, be patient if the deal is going to happen, it's going to happen? It's a fine balance. Um, I would say, yeah. yeah, I would say you definitely want to not be forgotten, but you also really don't want to be seen as pushy because I've seen that derail things. Uh, I mean, mm. some things are so mm -hmm. are so intriguing, you know, it doesn't really matter. So, as you said, if the deal is going to happen, it's going to happen anyway. Um, but on the other hand, uh, you don't want to be pushy. Like, so, so here's a, I guess maybe to make it a little more concrete. Um, when somebody just says, hey, I'm following up uh, on my previous email that I sent you, you know, 36 hours ago, and you didn't respond to, <laughs> uh, that's usually like a, you know, pretty annoying, right, for the person, because they might not be, they weren't going to respond, it's just that, you know, 36 hours, that's and another that's big one point. more email that they have to yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly, and I'm just going to uh, go on a quick little tangent, but like startup time versus corporate time is something I talk about in the book. Um, mm -hmm. startup time, like 24 hours is a valuable period of time for you. You know, there's a lot of startup can get done in a week as you and, you know, I'm sure many of the mm -hmm. listeners know in a large company, like things are talked about on a monthly, quarterly, even yearly basis. Right. So, so the priorities are not like weekly. They might, they're not going to change on a weekly basis. They might not even change mm -hmm. on a monthly basis. They might change in a quarterly or yearly basis. So uh, when somebody is taking 36 hours to respond, it's almost like dog years versus human years, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> um, it's very different. Like the startup is feeling that time very differently than 
a large company is feeling that time. So um, not to say it's like right or wrong or it's, it's good or bad. It's just truly different experiences of those same 36 hours. So, right. yeah. So, I mean, you do want to stay top of mind and maybe there's good ways to do that. Like I, I've definitely talked about this in the book where somebody could, um, you know, if you have a meaningful business update, like for example, mm-hmm. if you're in the beauty, if you're in the beauty space and, you know, a customer, let's say you're working with uh, L'Oreal, right? But you're in conversations with, with Estee and L'Oreal and you put out some joint press release about this big, huge thing you're doing. Um, that's useful to send to somebody at ELC, right? Because it's going to get their attention um, mm-hmm. and it's, it's highly relevant. It's not like a, hey, just following up. It's like, hey, just wanted to let you know, like we just did this big thing, thought it'd be useful or interesting to you, right? Or whatever. Like there's meaningful business not- updates. I meaningful business updates exactly meaningful business updates um or this is another one that i think uh i've seen some founders do this brilliantly and it always caught my attention when i was at elc so it worked on me um okay if some if somebody says uh like if somebody understands what you're looking for at, at elc or something that might be useful to your business it might not have anything to do with the, the startup itself but it might just be an interesting technology or an interesting article if you send it and say basically something along the lines of, um, hey, it was just came across this article, thought it might be relevant to, to what you're working on. That's a great follow up uh, yeah. because, hey, you're helping me do my job but, and you're not being pushy. But you, again, that makes me remember Staying you. top of mind. Yeah, exactly. exactly. The value add. Exactly. That makes so much sense. And in your book, the sections on major mistakes to avoid and also the corporate venture capital i found to be particularly practical practical and actionable in terms of advice i wanted to ask you when it comes to the major mistakes you cover things like trivializing corporate knowledge using too much jargon especially startup jargon (laughs) um, implementation costs too much time on the product not the problem are there any mistakes that you think are particularly pervasive in the beauty industry um hmm that's a that's a very good question specific to the beauty industry um i think one would be assuming that new is always gonna be uh like big um Hmm. so so like i'll give it i'll give an example like yeah yeah, i mean it's, it's so i mean not every founder does this at all so this is just a very i mean it's a mistake i've seen but it's not a pervasive mistake let's put it that way it's not everybody's doing this um but you know there is this this kind of underlying belief in some of these meetings uh let's use like millennial example right so uh especially when i was at elc this was a big top of mind thing um i think so i was at elc from 2015 um like early 2015 to like the end of 2017 so that period of time a lot of the big brands were worried like okay estee lauder brand is not reaching millennials so we need to hire uh kendall jenner right to be the spokeswoman so there's like there there was Mm -hmm. a lot of a lot of uh, money and effort kind of being put into that and they were highly worried about that um i would say that in a lot of the meetings with startups it was it was not assumed but like implied that as a large company they won't be able to figure it out um like Mm -hmm. they'll never be able to figure it out right with that brand and i would say that that is in some ways true for some of the, the the larger brands but it's a very bad thing to imply right because nobody wants mm-hmm. to feel that way <laughs> um, right like 
yeah, like you're saying like, oh, you're saying I, I was brought in to solve this problem. You're saying I can't solve it. Um, so, I mean, that's we'll not maybe. We'll figure it a, out. We will. Yeah. That, that's the yeah, well, in the corporate knowledge piece, too. Exactly. That these companies, especially Estee Lauder, that has been around and survived generation through generation, and not just survived, but thrived, I should say. And so assuming that they're not going to figure it out or evolve is definitely a mistake. Now they might evolve, they might solve it or evolve because of you, right? And I think that's a, <laughs> yeah. that's a, True. that's kind of what you want them to, to believe, but they're, you don't want them to feel like, uh, you don't, you don't want them to feel lectured to, I guess, <laughs> might be the, mm -hmm. the right way to put it. You don't want them to come in uh, or for you to come in and start kind of giving them a lecture on how they're behind and, you know, don't understand today's consumer and, you know, it might be, I mean, it's not, no one's ever going to come out and say that so explicitly, but um, you can definitely get the, that vibe, right, in some of these meetings mm. uh, where someone mm. will come in and kind of give uh, give that, that sense. So kind of like the way to, I would say the, the better way maybe to do it um, would be to kind of acknowledge that, yeah, you guys probably already know uh, a lot of the things that are on this slide, for example, right, if you have a lot of stats on the slide. Um, you okay. might say, okay, you probably already understand this, but just for clarity, right, I'm putting these numbers up um, so that we're all on the same page. And, you know, if you guys are seeing something different, I'd love to be personally very interested in hearing uh, more about that. So it's like you make it more of a conversation um, mm -hmm. as opposed to a like, hey, I'm lecturing um, to you because you dumb corporate people will never figure it out. That is such good advice. And so talking, it's actually a great segue about the innovation focus, and you mentioned this assumption that new is better, which is not always the case. How would you describe the innovation focus in beauty personal care today, and has it changed over the past few years? Yeah, so um, I would say maybe like significant period of time back, like the innovation focus might have just all been on the product, right? It might have been on, okay, we want longer lasting makeup, or we want um, you know, fragrance that lasts longer. We want, uh, you know, skincare that's going to be uh, more efficacious, right? So it's, you, you might have been fully product focused. Obviously, that stuff never goes away. So if you have, you know, technology that's going to, you know, make, uh, improve somebody or reduce somebody's wrinkles, right? Like that's going to always be interesting. Um, so I would say that has not changed. That part of it has not changed. There are now just more things that people are interested in um so i would say reaching new audiences yeah. is absolutely crucial uh, and people are very much interested in that so that could be marketing technology it could be ads it, obviously you know the whole influencer thing has been really big the past few years um so anything around reaching new audiences in a like trackable scalable uh and um cost effective uh way all of those things are very very interesting now um and mm -hmm. then the like the, there's a third pillar that I personally was very involved in and very still very interested in um, is basically technology that allows product customization so that you can, um, going back to the new audiences thing, mm -hmm. you know, part of the problem is reaching audiences, but then the other problem is making products for those audiences, right? And I think, you know, some brands have started doing a much better job with uh, looking at diverse skin tones or um, having a wider variety of, of foundation shades, for example. Um, yeah, but that's very, it's very costly to do that though. And I think that's what people don't realize. Uh, mm -hmm. it's not that, uh, you know, I, I don't want to be like out of my, out of my league here, but <laughs> I'll go out on a limb for a second. Um, like, I, I think there's an impression that 
you know, these big bad beauty companies are, are, you know, somewhat racist and like just focusing on, you know, white women's skin tones and, you know, that they're, I, at least in my experience, right. That's not, has not been the case. Um, it's more of, that's they're good. looking at, yeah. I mean, they're looking more at, um, purchase data, right. So like, I, I just, I'm trying to maybe put this in a easy to understand way, but if you have, let's say 40 shades of foundation, probably you're going to have five to, to 10 maybe that sell really well. And the rest are just going to kind of sit on a shelf most of the time. So, right. So if you want to expand that 40 to, let's say, 400 different shades, you're still going to have the same situation. You're going to have most of them are not going to sell anything, um, but you have to have, you know, a different package for each of those. It's basically new SKUs, right? You have different, you have new products. You have that many new products to track and manufacture and make sure are in stock. And um, it, all of that costs money, right? And increases overhead costs. So for these, much. These companies. Yeah. yeah. So that's a big deal. So what, I was very interested in while I was at ELC and, and still, you know, I continue to help a couple um, startups in this, in this area um, is mass customization. So it was technologies um, or tools that would allow you, a company to go create, you know, a thousand or infinite potentially SKUs of a product without drastically also increasing costs. Um, a lot of that has to do with selling direct to consumer, right? You can't have a thousand SKUs sitting in a store. Um, it's not going to work that way. Um, but if you have the ability to go create, let's say, a custom shade for somebody, that's very interesting. Um, so that's kind of, I would say, going back, going back to the innovation uh, question. Like, I think technologies or tools that allow you to better customize products for, for um, you know, obviously every individual is different. So create custom products for different types of individuals and potentially infinite types of products um, are extremely interesting, both as businesses. I don't even think a business like that needs to be acquired. They, a business like that, if somebody got it right, could literally be the next Estee Lauder. Um, they don't necessarily need to be acquired. I, I really think that's the direction everything is, is going. Um, that's obviously like unlimited brewing is in that, goes in mm -hmm. that direction too, but for the beer industry, um, I, I really think that, you know, people want, products that are kind of geared to them or solve their their needs but the problem is right now the way things are manufactured that's not really doable in a profitable way um so if you're working on a if you're working on something in that area uh you're going to get a lot of interest both from the large companies but also um you know you could go build a really interesting standalone business that is so brilliant. And are there any brands or companies by name that you think are really exciting or that are doing things right in that way? So besides yours? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I no, love that. My... We believe so much in personalization. It's true. And we're playing yeah, a long well, game think, with it. A hundred percent. And I think like going, uh, kind of tying that to the innovation question, like to build products for unique audiences, you need to understand those audiences, right? So um, if you don't have that, then you obviously can't build something. So you're like the first step, uh, to even being able to do that for, for anybody. So I think you guys are doing some really interesting work, but, um, Thanks. so another, another one that's really interesting to me, even though it's not customization, um, I do like what Scentbird is doing quite a bit. And so, uh, for, for those that don't love Scentbird. Yeah. But tell me more. And for those who don't know of them. 
Yeah, so those who don't know Scentbird, um, I think they describe themselves as like Netflix for fragrance or something, uh, where you can, um, basically you get, I think it depends what plan you're on, but you get um, to order a certain amount of, uh, of different fragrances every month. Um, and they come in these little pods, basically, that go into a uh, delivery device that sprays. Um, and I believe it's enough for the whole month is what you get. It's like 30 sprays or, or maybe 60 sprays or something. Um, and it's, I think, 10 or $15 a month. But, you know, they always mess around so with their pricing. So affordable, yeah. So affordable. But the thing that's really cool about it is you get to try different ones. I mean, I don't know about you, but, like, committing to yeah. a uh, large bottle of fragrance is, number one, it costs quite a bit. Um, yeah. But number two, like, I mean, you know, you I, I don't know about you. I think I feel like uh, many people now want variety and, and, and yeah. Uh, you know, the ability to try different things. So if you buy a big bottle of fragrance, you're kind of locked into that one unless you want to buy, you know, a bunch of different ones. So what Scentbird lets you do is, you know, I can use one for 30 days and then the next month use a totally different fragrance uh, and the price is the same for me. So it's a subscription. What's also uh, been so interesting too about, to your point about people wanting to experiment and try different things, what we see in the data also has been for many years, people saying that they want travel size they want that portability which i think is another super smart i love element that part of what sunbird is doing love yep. them yep so that's a big that's a big part um and then there's a whole like data piece actually which is underrated uh aspect of what they're doing is that they know um a lot more about what fragrances people are selecting than even honestly the brands in many cases don't know a lot of this information because they can only I mean, if they're selling through a retailer, like let's say, uh, you know, Lancome selling through Macy's, Macy's doesn't share a lot of that with Lancome. Uh, they don't share mm -hmm. a lot of the data. I mean, right. they'll share your sales, but yeah, I mean, they won't share who that customer is really. Uh, whereas, you know, Scentbird knows a lot more about you. They know where, you know, even where you live and they know, um, obviously because it's a digital platform, there's a lot more tracking that can be done. So, uh, it, you know, as a company, I guess they have a lot of insights that are, um, Pretty interesting, I think, from uh, just from a uh, potential personalization standpoint down the road. Um, I don't know if they're going to go down that that you know in that direction of maybe creating their own brands and maybe they I don't even know do they already do that. Um, but it's I think an area they could get into. So that's why I think mm -hmm. something, like they're doing something very interesting. So so smart of them, and I think they do have a a, a brand that's in the makeup side actually, Deck of Scarlet. So I think they're mm. dabbling it if they're not already doing that. But I think certainly in fragrance as well, it'll be so interesting to watch what's on the horizon for them. Yeah, so, and I think um, I think just one other name to throw out there, and yeah. I know everybody talks about them these days, but uh, like Glossier, I think just their whole story oh, has been more. very interesting. Yeah, yeah. I just I like the I like the idea of going from content to brand. Um, I think it's just a it's like a very interesting strategy. It's a, it's kind of the older version, not older, I don't want to say older, but different version of what Scentbird is doing. So like in Glossier's mm -hmm. case, they had the blog um, and they had probably a good sense of what people were engaging with on the blog and then went from that to building products, right? So it's, it's kind yeah. of like instead of going the route of, hey, we'll build a product and then market it. And that can work too. It's just, this feels more like more of a, I don't want to say a sure thing, but um, it, it feels like a more logical extension, right? Like, oh, we, we know people really engage with this type of content. So let's build a brand around that type of content. So 
it, it just feels like more um, scientific, I guess, is maybe a better word yes. for it there's that validation built in, which is something that we talk about a lot at Beauty Business School and on the podcast, which is that the more consumer validation that you can have, the better you're de-risking things as an entrepreneur, exactly. which is so, so helpful. And That's so the right way to put it. The, That's the best word. <laughs> yeah, the de-risking. And um, I feel like the podcast listeners, if we do not ask this holy grail question to the man who was behind the scenes and has been behind the scenes, it's, um, you know, what do the major players like an Estee Lauder, a L'Oreal, who, you know, it's the, it's the secret in the industry, but a well-kept secret, but now the secret's out there that they own a vast majority of the beauty industry. What are they looking for when it comes to adding new brands to their portfolios? Is there anything so, that entrepreneurs yeah. can optimize for? So I think, um, I guess first off, the uh, first thing I would say is I would never recommend optimizing purely for an acquisition um because okay. i think that, very helpful I think that, yeah i think that severely limits uh your options and and you lose a lot of leverage right because basically if, if and there are this has happened in other companies cases but if you know if basically people know that you're not making any money um and they, they basically know like oh you have to be acquired there's no other way your business is going to work right um it just puts you in a bad spot when you're negotiating. So I, I don't ever recommend that. That said, it happens all the time and it works out very well for some people. So I just would not personally do it that way. Um, mm -hmm. But if you're building a brand uh, and you know maybe getting acquired is something you'd like to have the option of uh, down the road, I think there's there's kind of two main areas that people are, the larger brands at least, are looking for. So the first one, um, I kind of mentioned it earlier, but if you have some unique defensible technology, uh, whether that be a device, uh, whether that be an applicator, whether that be a formulation, um, you are in very good shape. So and defensible usually means like patents of some type, uh, some way, shape, or mm -hmm. form, you know, so IP. Um, I think you're in very good shape and, and it's easy for someone inside one of those companies to make the case to acquire you. Uh, because they say, hey, we'll get the IP, right? Like if nothing else, like let's say this company only has 500 customers, but they have a very cool technology and we know if we plug it into brand X, you know, we know our customers will love it, right? So all we need to do is buy this IP or buy this, tech, this company, you know, put it into this bigger brand and that's going to take off. Um, that happens. And that's that's probably like the number one way. So if, you, if you're doing something physical hmm. or technology related, you're in very very good shape um the second one i think is probably more relevant uh to, to a wider audience i guess and that would be if you're bringing unique or new audiences um or insights about audiences to these large companies i think that's very valuable and, and kind of extremely relevant to them these days uh because again i think the uh, we talked about this earlier when we were saying uh lecturing to these larger companies about about mm -hmm. uh figuring things out um, I think like to an extent, they know they need to go external to figure some of these things out now. I think that's one big mm -hmm. difference from when I started with ELC in 2015. Um, this whole like external innovation thing was kind of, I mean, I don't want to say just starting. There were companies doing it, um, like Procter & Gamble's, and they, they've been doing it for like 20, 25 years. And they, they, they were like some, one of the pioneers of this kind of external open innovation idea. Um, but now it's almost every company is doing some type of external innovation and it's kind of a um 
kind of like a new era, right? Where you don't have to convince them that they need to go external. They know they need to go external uh, mm -hmm. and they're willing to pay for that. So I guess like, here's an example. Um, I know, uh, I don't want to say which one, but one of ELC's acquisitions while I was there, uh, they bought it specifically because it does well in the kind of specialty retailer segment. Um, so mm -hmm. like Sephora and Ulta, uh, like that, those types of stores. Uh, both domestically and internationally. So they were looking for brands. They wanted to diversify at least uh, out of the department, like purely department store. Um, not, not saying mm -hmm. all their brands sell in department stores, but definitely they were, if you look at their brands as a portfolio, especially, you know, 2015, 2016, they were very heavy on the department store side. And so one of the goals was to diversify out. So whether that's direct to consumer, which, you know, they've obviously done some of that, but also into more of like the Sephora brands that do very well in Sephora. So um, that, that drove some of their acquisition strategies. So that's, again, going back to the audiences, like that's an audience they wanted to do better with and get a foothold with. Um, and so that's why they, that's like the primary reason they bought that company. Um, hmm. So, yeah. So that like, if you can show them you're reaching new audiences, I think that's very valuable. Uh, and then I think the last thing I'll say on that is uh, companies that own their distribution are also very interesting. So that that's like primarily direct to consumer, but could also be, uh, you know, companies that own physical retail as well. So um, that are doing a good right. job of that. So yeah, if you own your- Brilliant, you, yeah. Yeah, I think companies that are going through secondary distribution, so companies who are, let's say, selling through Macy's or, and not, I don't wanna pick on Macy's only because I, I mean, there are some things <laughs> that they're doing very well also, uh, but like, if you are selling through somebody else, let's put it that way. Um, so meaning you don't reach your customer directly. Uh, there's strong disadvantages of that, obviously, because if something happens to that partner or something happens to their demand or they decide to private label something. I mean, this also applies to companies right. that sell through Amazon. Right. Um, I mean, I, Major so again, risk not, right now. Yeah, like not picking on, on Macy's. Like this also applies if your sales channel is Amazon and you think, that's going to last forever. Like Amazon is watching what goes, what goes well and what they can go mm -hmm. private label. So um, just, you know, so if you're selling off your website, there's nothing like that. Or if you're selling, you know, your own direct to consumer channel. Um, and I don't count Amazon as direct to consumer. Some people do. I, I absolutely do not uh, mm -hmm. because you might as well be selling through like Walmart. I mean, Walmart private label. <laughs> right. like so uh, yeah, it's, it's just, um, I think if you own your audience, like not own your audience, that sounds horrible. <laughs> no, you, I think that's a great way to say it, actually. Yeah, if you have a direct audience. channel, yeah, you have a direct yeah. channel to your audience, uh, you're in, you're much more attractive to a large company just because they know if they start working with you, you know, or they buy you, then they have a direct line to the audience. So there's, right. yeah, there's a, a lot of value in that. And at the end of the day, it's all about the consumer and being able to speak to him or her. So. Yep, that makes absolutely. a lot of sense. I think that's a, such a beautiful way to distill what these big companies are looking for. And just to piggyback on that, I'd love to hear your thoughts on corporate venture capital right now in beauty. Is this a good time? I know there's a lot of considerations for a company if they want to take corporate VC, but just in general, what are your impressions right now about beauty VC? Um, could be very, very interesting, uh, depending on what you're looking for and what the terms are. I would say there's, and this is also in the book, but um, there are certain terms that corporate VC will try to put in. Um, 
which can be very detrimental <laughs> uh, or, or potentially it's fine. So like, you know, a big one is exclusivity. Uh, so if okay. this is something I see a lot of founders fall into the trap of where a corporate VC will say, um, you know, this is how much we'd like to invest in you. This is the valuation we're giving. You know, the valuation might be very high compared to what a regular VC is giving. So it's tempting to go with that corporate VC. But they'll throw a term in there, which is, uh, I mean, this is, might be a very specific thing to be talking about on the interview, but I'll, I'll mention it anyway. Um, it, the term that tends to get thrown in is uh, right of first refusal. So it's the ability for uh, this company that's investing in you to say no to anybody else who tries to come and buy your company. And the mm. risk there, the risk there, right, is uh, to put some hypothetical but more concrete names on it. Uh, if let's say, you know, L'Oreal comes in and says, hey, you know, I want to invest $5 million in your company, I'll give you a valuation of $50 million. So, you know, I only want 10% of your company. Um, and I'll give you $5 million. That sounds great, right? Maybe your other VCs are saying that you're talking to are saying, oh, this company is worth 25 million. So you're like, wow, I get a name like wow. L'Oreal. <laughs> yeah, they're giving me double the valuation. This is awesome. But the risk, right, if you take that right of first refusal clause that, you know, many of them, it's, it's not always there, but it's usually they'll start with trying to put it there. Let's put it that way. Um, right. The legal it, team is always going to start with the most that they can. Yeah. And their, and their logic is, you know, hey, we're not just bringing money. Like, we're going to give you expertise and we're going to give you distribution. And, you know, we deserve to have the right of first refusal. So Estee Lauder can't just sweep in and you know, pay less than what we invested and buy your company, right? So I, I like, there's logic mm -hmm. behind why they ask for that. Um, but the risk for the founder, right? Or the, uh, or the company, the startup, um, is that this, uh, this clause is going to prevent you from getting the best deal for your company. So, or even potentially getting any deal for your company. So here's, mm -hmm. the, here's like a, a concrete example there. Let's say, you know, you get, take that money from L'Oreal and it doesn't go that well. Uh, like not because of L'Oreal, not because of you, but maybe the market wasn't as big as you expected. Uh, and now, you know, the company is worth, uh, maybe maybe it is worth something to an acquirer, but it's only worth 10 million. Um, so L'Oreal, let's say, you know, they only own 10% of the company, you know, they're only going to get 1 million back, right? And if, if someone buys it for 10 million. The problem is, it might be easier for L'Oreal to either not, let's say if L'Oreal doesn't want to buy it, right? Uh, but there are potentially other buyers who are competitors of L'Oreal. If they have the right of first refusal, they may say, you know what, like, let's just have this company. Like, we would rather this company let's not go think to it, right. Yeah. So we're just going to refuse any acquisition offers because we're not making any money on it. Right. So why would we, you know, go out of our way to grant you the right to be acquired by a competitor? Um, you know, I mean, not saying this happens often, but it's a risk you take if you take uh, this this term makes it into your term sheet <laughs> and that's the term sheet that you mm -hmm. take. So um, it's something to, to definitely keep in mind. Now that said, uh, these things can also work very, very well. So I, I mean, I, I don't want to give a blanket statement of, okay, corporate venture capital is good. Corporate venture capital is bad. Uh, I think, I mean, I think it can work very well. You, I, and I think both parties just need to be um, aware of the fact that uh, you're operating with different incentives. Um, mm -hmm. and you know, for a founder, right? Like if you, let's say that same example, the 10 million, uh, valuation, if the founder still owned half of it, right. That's a great outcome for the founder. Um, mm -hmm. but for the large company, right. It's like a horrible outcome. So, you know, they, they may try to block it. And so, um, you just have to be cognizant of that. Uh, and it's funny enough in the talks I do with, uh, with any large companies, like this is part of 
what I share with them is that you, you need to kind of be aware when you're entering into these relationships that the founder is going to have a very different set of incentives than, than you are. Um, you know, as a large company, I mean, especially if some of these very large companies, the amount that moves the needle for them, right, is right. so much greater than what it is for an individual founder, uh, right. like many orders of magnitude greater. So uh, that, that alone causes a lot of tension. So, I mean, I would just say in the right situation, it makes a lot of sense. Um, I would be more hesitant to take it from a brand as opposed to a uh, retailer, right? So like, for example, if um, I feel like if a retailer, like uh, I know LVMH, the parent company of Sephora, they do um, some corporate venture capital and I would be more ready to take money from them just as a blanket rule, as opposed to a brand like a L'Oreal or an Estee Lauder. Um, just simply because, yeah. yeah, just simply because the incentives I think are a little bit more aligned. Like I would find it rare for a company like, like I would be very surprised if a retailer ever said, oh, you can't sell at any other retailer, right? Like right. it has to be sold at Sephora. I mean, like they might, but I would be very surprised if they said that. Whereas right. I could definitely see uh, like ELC or L'Oreal saying, you know, if they put money in them saying, oh, you can't be acquired by any other brand, right? I could see them saying something like that. Um, so yeah, it's just like the dynamics. It also depends what you are, right? If you're a retailer or an e-commerce play, like that's a little different than if you're a, you know, a new app makeup application technology, for example, <laughs> right? That would be different. Yeah. Um, so it's all on a case by case basis, obviously. Uh, but just some general rules to keep in mind. And, and of course, the book goes into this in more detail. The book does. And this is why I love the book. And I think it's such a great uh, thing that you wrote it because it's almost like a translation dictionary between the corporate powers and folks who are in the startup space and bridging that divide of trying to help bring more of an alignment together, or at least to understand the different incentives. So I very much encourage anyone who's at this stage or is considering corporate venture capital to pick up a copy of the book. And actually, it's a perfect segue because I want to ask you, how can people connect with you if uh, they're looking for more information on this? Yeah, so I think the best way is probably, uh, so my website is very simple, just neilsony.com. Um, that has, you know, kind of a way to we'll include a email link. Yep. So that's a, that's probably a good way. Um, Twitter and Instagram are good. Uh, my handle is uh, the rail Neil S. So T H E R E A L uh, N E I L S. Perfect. <laughs> so hopefully, hopefully easy enough to find. Um, I'm probably most active on Twitter of all the social uh, channels, but Instagram, I, I definitely go on also. So. Um, so those are good. And, and if you want to email me, my email is on, uh, on my website. So if you just go there, um, you'll find it. And there's also a contact form if you want to rather use that. Perfect. And so I want to wrap up by asking if there is one piece of advice that you could give to beauty entrepreneurs, what would it be? Ooh, that's a good, that's a very good question. Um, I would say, well, number one, just understand that this is the best time ever uh, to be a beauty entrepreneur. Um, I love that. So I agree. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, uh, just in terms of general encouragement, that's what I would, that's what I would say is that you're, you know, you're operating at a time when there are fewer gatekeepers, um, probably more incentives to build a, you know, a, a good beauty company or, or a profitable beauty company than ever. Um, and there's tons of consumer interest. So, uh, yeah, I would say you're just, that's the number one thing is this is the best time ever to be a 
um, a beauty entrepreneur. So keep at it, I guess, is the piece of advice that I would give. Amazing. Thank you so much, Neil. I feel so honored that you could be part of the podcast today. You are full of so much knowledge and experience. Thank you so much. No, thanks for, uh, for giving me this opportunity. And um, I'm looking forward to, to listening to all of your other episodes. I'm, I'm excited for this.